Uh, Gracious God, we pray that you would speak to us today, that you would encourage us today, that you would be with us today. Lord, help us have new ears to hear, new eyes to see, and lives that can be changed. Lord, as we dig into new disciplines or old disciplines, we pray that you would stir up something in us that we might want to be more like you have made us to be. And then challenge us, Lord. Call us, Lord. Empower us, Lord, that we might be changed. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Uh, Last year, I read a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. And in it, he tells this story. He writes, I live right on the edge of downtown Portland in this fun micro-urban neighborhood. Across the street is a house full of single people who are essentially a walking advertisement for Nike. Uh, Nike is based in Portland's suburbs, and I'm not sure if they work for the swoosh or are sponsored by the swoosh or what, but all six of them are avid runners. Now, I run, but I'm not a runner. You know what I mean. These people are runners, and frequently early in the morning as I'm sitting there drinking my coffee and praying, I I see them file out the front door and go for a sunrise run. Naturally, they are wearing tights, and and they look good, single-digit body fat, lean but muscular look, impeccable posture, shoulders back, chin up, and then they start to prance, I mean run. They look more like antelope than human. Seriously, their warm-ups is faster than my speed workout. And regularly as they run off, I think to myself, I want that. I want to look good like that. I want to run a six-minute mile without breaking a sweat. I want that level of health and energy and vitality. I want that life. But then I think about the lifestyle behind it. While I was up watching TV and drinking red wine until midnight, they ate celery and water and went to bed before nine. While I was sipping my Kenyan single origin in my bathrobe, they were out sweating through the humid goop of summer and the ice of winter. When I run, I catch up on a podcast or stare off into space thinking about teaching for Sunday. They run intervals every 400 meters and stretch their lungs to the breaking point. I run a cost-benefit analysis and quickly decide, as great as they look in the morning fog, it's not worth the pain. So I simply spectate. The reality is I want the life but I'm not willing to adopt the lifestyle behind it. And Comer goes on, I think that's how a lot of us feel about Jesus. We read the stories of Jesus, his joy, his resolute peace through uncertainty, his unanxious presence, his relaxed manner and how in the moment he was, and think, I want that life. We hear his open invite to to life to the full, and we think, sign me up. We hear about his easy yoke and soul-deep rest and think, gosh, yes, heck yes, I need that. 
but then we're not willing to adopt his lifestyle. I'm struck by that idea. We want the life, but we're not willing to adopt the lifestyle. I wonder if you know what he's talking about. I I wonder if you ever aspire towards greater depth, but won't then take the dive. I wonder if you aspire to know God better, but then you're not willing to give Him a call. I wonder if you aspire toward a healthier soul, but then aren't willing to change. And that's our challenge. Maybe we need to do a little bit of spring cleaning, not, not so much in our homes, but in our souls. Which brings us to this new series. In this new series, we're going to be taking a look at the lifestyle that Jesus lives in hopes that we can have a life more like His. And as we do, we will see that part of what makes Jesus different are these disciplines that He practices. Alas, for too many of us, there's, there's no room for some of these normal disciplines because our lives are simply too full, too stuffed, too busy. I mean, when we think about spiritual disciplines, we often just think about more things that I need to add into my already overstuffed life. Sure, sure, I'd love to, to pray more or read the Bible more or serve more, but my life is already so full and so loud and so busy that those things just kind of get pushed aside, drowned out. There's just no room for them. But that being said, interestingly, there's actually another type of discipline. And these are the disciplines that Dallas Willers calls the disciplines of abstinence, where instead of adding something into your life, you're taking something away. So think silence, solitude, fasting, frugality, even sacrifice. What's more, if you were to picture someone you know or have known who seems like they're way farther along in the faith, and if you can't think of anyone like that, think Jesus, it's interesting that a lot of the words that come to mind in describing those people are words of fullness and yet also words of lack. Those people seem to be unhurried. They seem to be unstressed. They are not easily overwhelmed. They are not easily distracted. They are not tired and they are not burned out. But how do you do that? How do do they get that way? What do they do? How long does that take? And might our real challenge be that our lives are simply a bit too cluttered, too crowded, too comfortable? And could these disciplines help us to live the life and lifestyle of Jesus better? And so for the next six weeks, we're going to be taking a look at this grouping of spiritual disciplines. And interestingly, we'll be adding in some of those disciplines of engagement as well. Because a lot of times in the Scriptures, these seem to go together. 
when you hear about fasting, you'll also often hear about praying. When, you, when we talk about sacrifice, that, that seems to normally go with worship. Solitude sometimes goes with study. But, but they all get mixed in in different ways. So, so we're going to be focusing on the discipline of lack, of abstinence, but we'll also add in a discipline of something to add in. And as has often been said and seen, when we become a little bit more disciplined in one area of life, it tends to start blessing other areas as well. Okay, that's the background. A whole new series. There's a lot of extra background. Uh, But if you would, then I would encourage and invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 38. Luke 10, 38. And it begins like this. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door is already locked and my children are, and I are in bed, I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Amen. So, a little bit of a recap here first before we dig a little bit deeper. Our passage begins with Jesus on his way from one place to another place, and he comes to a village, and a woman named Martha opens her home to him. Not enough is said about that verse. Martha, as we will see in a moment, has become an example of what not to do, because, of course, Mary, her sister, has chosen better. But notice, that's not where the story starts. It starts with Martha opening her home to Jesus. 
And if we were to put ourselves in her shoes, in our lives, we probably might experience a couple of different reactions if Jesus was coming through our town and, and we were thinking about opening our home to Him. First, absolutely, we're going to invite Jesus in because He's Jesus after all. But then maybe second, as we think about our home right now, today, this very moment, there might be some kind of expletive that then goes through our mind as well. Oh, no, not right now. I mean, sure, sure, we want a little more Jesus in our lives, but then when we start to think of the state of our house and the state of our lives right now, well, that's now something different because there might be a little bit of clutter, a little bit of mess, a little bit of chaos. Plus, maybe I had plans for today. I was going to take a nap or catch a game or read a book or work on that hobby or that project or because of this sermon series, I probably have to clean up a little bit too. Except the reality is that Jesus is going, if I let Jesus in, He's going to get in the way of what I wanted to do. Except He's Jesus. And you can kind of see the tension there, the issue. What happens if there's no room for Jesus in our lives, no space? What if we're not ready for Him? And yet, notice that's not Martha. Or it is, but she overcomes any hesitation anyway and invites Jesus in. To make that even more impressive and chaotic, let's also remember that Jesus doesn't travel alone. Jesus has 12 disciples. And as we talked about a long time ago, unlike how they normally are portrayed, they are probably 12-year-old boys. These are teenagers. Now, some of them have been working professionally for a couple of years. Peter, the oldest, is, is already married. So it's not quite this, it's not a one-to-one -one relationship there. It's not exactly the same as having 12, 12-year-olds 12 come into your house right now. But people don't change that much in 2,000 years. So there's probably some roughhousing, some pushing, some shoving, some horseplay. They didn't have showers, so there's probably a smell, probably a mess. And if you had to feed them, let's not kid ourselves, they're going to put the food away. So now we come back to our story and we marvel at Martha's faithfulness as she invites in Jesus and his whole youth group. Wait, you want more food? Wait, stop throwing that. That's breakable. Wait, wait where's Mary? She should be helping. Anyone should be helping. And then we come back to our story. You see, understandably, Martha is distracted. She's worried. She's upset. And so she goes to Jesus. And there's a little bit of triangulation here, which is funny, because she doesn't go to Mary. She goes to Jesus to get him to talk to Mary, but we're going to let that one just go for right now. Jesus sees the problem. Martha did the right thing by inviting Jesus in, but now she's lost Jesus in all of the distraction, in the hosting. And with compassion, Jesus points Martha away from all of the things that are getting in the way and invites her to come back to him. Sometime later, Jesus is off praying. And the disciples are there too, and they ask Jesus to teach them to pray. 
Jesus points them toward the Lord's Prayer. But in this, Jesus also invites them towards boldness in prayer. He invites them to ask. He reminds them that God is the giver of good gifts. And then in what I always find these days to be a funny line, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead, to which I have to confess to you, I'm the kind of father that if a daughter asks for a snake, I will offer her a fish. And I don't know what that means, but it seems like it's related. Uh, Anyway, what does all this have to do with us becomes the question. I I think there are at least two different disciplines being encouraged and pointed out in our passage, and I think they're worth talking about more because I think we need them more in our lives. The first that I want to talk about is the discipline of simplicity, and the second is prayer. Notice, simplicity will probably involve removing things from our lives, And prayer, for many of us, will require adding something into our life. And let's also remember at the outset that depending on where you are in life right now, some disciplines may be very easy and some will be very hard, depending on who you are. For you, simplicity might be very simple. Prayer is a little harder. For others, prayer is easy. Simplicity is impossible. And then for others still, if you're like me, they're both hard. But we'll start with the spiritual discipline or maybe the spiritual aspiration called simplicity, which is what it sounds like. What if our lives were simply less full? What if we had less wants? What if we were less busy? What if we were less stressed? Initially, that sounds good, doesn't it? If part of the problem that we face and that our society applauds is more, what starts to happen as we start to choose to live with less? And what if we could become less attached to all that stuff and all that busyness and all that noise and all that extra? Not least because this all adds so much extra stress into our lives. I mean, keeping this as simple, as simple as we can. I mean, we're not talking overwhelming schedules and all the noise. We'll get to noise next week. But, but just a quick example. You buy something of value. Think something small. Now you need to find a place to put it. It probably should also go in something wherever you're going to put it so you can keep it safe and you know where it is. Then you're going to have to keep it clean. Then you're going to have to, there's probably some upkeep in keeping it going. And then you have to actually use it for whatever it is you bought it for. And then these days you have to attach it to your home network. What happens when that doesn't work? And you're going to have to keep it updated and upgraded. And now by the time all that's done, they've made a new one. Think about all of the extra responsibility and weight, and worry, and stress that comes with simply buying some new valuable thing. It's no wonder that we get distracted. Which brings us back to our story, because Martha's life has become not simple, and therefore we're not surprised to find her worried, upset, and distracted. 
Frankly, I wonder if that's not a bad test. If you are worried or upset or distracted, is your life not simple? Is that the test? Martha has lost sight of the main thing in all of the many other things that need to be done. Mary's life is simpler. There's only one thing that's needed. And Mary has chosen this something different, something better, sitting at the Lord's feet. Somehow Mary is able to put the first thing first, and then everything else seems to to fall in its place around her. I wonder if that's the key to simplicity. Putting Jesus first and best and most, and then everything else is just everything else. That being said, it's not easy. There's a reason this is a discipline. To live a life of simplicity means that we are doing the work of reducing and limiting and avoiding. But maybe for most of us, this actually starts with a much deeper change inside of us. Because for too many of us, we equate more with status, with security, with strength. If I have more, I am better. If I'm doing more, I am better. If I have more, I am safer. If I have more, I am in more control. Because this is what our world teaches us. And it happens to be the antithesis of simplicity. To aspire down. To have less. To be unhurried, to be bored, to be doing less, to de-accumulate. It starts to sound good, and then it starts to sound weird. It's probably worth noting at this point that we're not talking about just getting rid of stuff, about donating everything. This is not that kind of spring cleaning. This isn't go into your closet and just pull everything out and give it all the community storehouse in Christ Haven. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about quitting our jobs and canceling everything on our calendars. Just kind of a mass email, dear everyone, I quit. And that's, that's, that would be simple, but that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about uh, a huge organization and cleaning our stuff out better project. Finding ways to manage more better. And if you're thinking, well, I don't have, you're not off the hook either. Because the very thought, I don't have enough, means that you are just as concerned and focused on stuff as the person who has way too much and is still greedy for more. The point of this passage is not that Martha should have started her work earlier. The point of this passage is not, Martha, you should have made some casseroles yesterday just in case Jesus stopped by. And it's not that she would have been better off being homeless. If she didn't have anything, she wouldn't have to worry about anything. That's not not the point. Because she still would have been focused on the wrong things. But there's the trick. 
Simplicity is not just about having, being, or doing less, because that then just keeps us focused on not simple. The discipline comes as we work to change what it is that we desire, change what it is that we think about, change what it is that we focus on as we desire and think about and focus on God's kingdom first, most, and best. Mark Scandoret writes, Simplicity is choosing to leverage time, money, talents, and possessions toward what matters most. It's what Jesus was getting at when he said, Seek first his kingdom. In other words, live from a deeper sense of purpose and align your whole life around that purpose. I'll read that first part again because I think it's important. Simplicity is choosing to leverage time, money, and talents and possessions towards what matters most. Simplicity is about a great reversal. I focus on my time and my money and my talents and my possessions first which is why I don't live a very simple life. Jesus is calling us, seek first my kingdom first, and then use the time and the money and the talents and the possessions for that. And it becomes much simpler. I wonder if we could refocus our lives more on Jesus, and as we do, find more simplicity in our lives. I wonder if we were to make our lives more simple, would it help us then refocus more on Jesus? Which then brings us to prayer. Interestingly, after talking about distraction, our author Luke moves right on to this passage on prayer, as if part of what it means to sit at the feet of Jesus is prayer, as if part of what it looks like to listen to Jesus is prayer as if part of what distraction keeps us from is prayer. In other words, despite the fact that this is a new chapter, what if these passages are actually a little bit connected? The disciples come to Jesus, they ask Him, teach us to pray. And that should strike you as strange, and yet there's also a little bit of hope there as well. It should strike you as strange because most of these disciples were Jewish, and so they already knew how to pray. You see, that's kind of a, a silly request. Me going to another pastor being like, hey, can you teach me to pray? What? Well, you start with a dear God, and then you say some stuff, and you say amen at the end. I thought you knew that already. I mean, like, it's a little weird that these people who were prayers were then asking Jesus, teach us to pray, unless Jesus prayed differently, and they wanted to learn how He prayed, or they wanted to learn how to pray better. And there's also some hope there because this reminds us that we can learn to pray better, that prayer is a learned activity. In other words, it's not that some people are good at praying and the rest of us are not. It's that those people have learned to pray and they've practiced praying. 
which reminds us again that prayer, like simplicity, is a discipline, which means that this is something we have to prioritize and practice because it's also one of the ways that God is hoping to work His change in us and through us. In fact, I I find this passage enlightening because of its context. We have just talked about simplicity, and then we come to prayer, which reminds us that prayer is less about what we get from God and more about how we move closer to God. A lot of times when we think about prayer, we think about how we're asking for stuff. Dear God, I want more of this, less of this. I want this person to be better. I need a new car. I need a new this. I, need, I want some of these things, which, which is dissonant if the point of the earlier passage is simplicity. And yet, Jesus' prayer is different, which might be why the disciples said, Jesus, teach us to pray. And we see pieces of the Lord's Prayer. Father, your name be hallowed. Father, your kingdom come. And then when we do get to our needs, you'll notice we're praying for just enough. Our daily bread, not a 12-course meal or a full pantry. Our sins forgiven, not everyone else's wrongdoing fixed. Oh, and we still need to be a people who forgive. And God, don't let us be led into temptation. You'll notice in all of this, what we are really praying for here, what we're really seeking after, what we're really asking God for is for God's kingdom to come, not ours, not what we can get. We're really asking for this place to be more the way God wants it to be. The thing we most want is God's kingdom come and His will be done. It's simple. I wonder if even this week we could spend a little bit of time working on the discipline of prayer. I wonder if this week, through practice, we could learn to pray better. I wonder how that discipline of prayer might change us. If you're thinking, I could try that this week, I should try that this week, my question for you is when? This week. When are you going to try it? As we move through this spring, I wonder if we might do a little bit of cleaning. Living out a little more of the lifestyle of Jesus so that we might be able to experience a little bit more of the life of Jesus. And maybe for today, that simply starts with simplicity and prayer. So let us pray. Lord God, we, we confess to you that our lives are anything but simple. We live lives full of distraction. We relate too often to Martha as she is distracted and upset and worried about many, many things. And in that, she misses the opportunity to be with you. Lord, help us to wrestle with this idea of simplicity in our modern world, 
in our full lives, with our busy schedules. Help us wrestle with this idea of simplicity, the discipline of simplicity, that we might find you better, that we might engage with you more. Lord, and teach us to pray. Teach us to pray like you pray. And help us encounter you as we do. Lord, we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.